For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptised into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. We should not commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test Christ, as some of them did, and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages have come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, and we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Thanks for reading, Ellie, and good morning, everyone. We have my welcome to Jenny's. My name's Carl. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church, honey. It's lovely to be with you today. We're, we're working our way through a series looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church, and we come this week to chapter 10. And as we get there, I want to ask you a question. Most of you have come to know my parents. They come to church here most of the weeks. Do you think I'm more like my mum or more like my dad? What do you think? You don't have to answer uh, straight away. But am I, I more like my mum or more like my dad? Here's the thing. My parents are nearly 30 years older than me. And both of them still have full heads of hair right? No thinning going on at all in either of my parents. A part of the reason for that might be that my dad only has one daughter, whereas I have the pleasure of having two. That could be part of it. That's what we say in my household. But here's the thing. I don't take after either of those people in that sense, but I do take after my grandfather. I want to show you a photo of my grandfather. It's on the screen behind me here. This is my mum's father. He's no longer alive, uh, but this is back when he was holding Jemima nearly 15 years ago. And when I look at this photo, I know what my future holds, right? 
Now, what about you? Do you take after your mom or your dad, or do you take after a grandparent? Who do you take after? See, Paul's writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, he's writing it to the church in Corinth. He's writing it to an audience that are most likely to be Greco-Roman people, not Jewish people. And in verse 1, he starts this way. He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. So Paul's speaking here to the church in Corinth. Remember that? And he's saying our ancestors were under the cloud. Our ancestors passed through the sea. I want you to notice this little detail because I think it's quite important for us. See, Paul's convinced of the Christian status of the believers in the church of Corinth. And that means that they are part of God's family. And therefore, their ancestors include the Israelites who who went through the sea. And I want to suggest to you this morning that by extension, that makes the Israelites our spiritual ancestors in a way. And that means that our spiritual heritage includes those things that we've been looking at in the book of Exodus this year. I think that matters for two reasons. The first of those reasons is I think Paul wants us to know with absolute certainty that the spiritual world is a real world, that the spiritual world exists. It's it's, it's there. We can't touch it and we can't taste it and we can't see it, but the spiritual world exists. And secondly, he wants us to see that our spiritual, our spiritual DNA, if you like, our spiritual your heritage is tied up with our, our ancestors, which means that we are probably going to take after them. And that means that we're likely to have rebellious hearts as well, just like our spiritual ancestors. And so Paul says, and I think this is a really big idea in, this, in, in these verses that Ellie just read to us. The big idea then is that we need to work hard to flee from idolatry. As Don Carson puts it, don't even flirt with idolatry. Have nothing to do with it. Don't dabble in it. Instead, flee from it. Now, a little bit of context for you, just to to help you get your heads back into 1 Corinthians. You might remember back in in chapter 8, verse 4, Paul's train of thought in chapter 8 had changed from kind of relationships and marriage and singleness and those sorts of things. And he starts to talk about idols in chapter 8. And in verse 4, he says this, So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in all the world, and that there is no God but one. See, Paul's point here in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians is that the idols that they encountered in Corinth, they're not real things. They're just lumps of stone or blocks of wood, that these things are, are inanimate. I think most of us get that today, don't we? those sort of stone idols or golden idols or wooden idols, they're nothing, they're inanimate objects. And Paul says, there's only one God. But then here in chapter 10, he's getting back into this topic of idols and he's starting to nuance his teaching a little bit. Idols are nothing, says Paul, that still stands. But don't be mistaken, the spiritual world exists. That's a real thing. Idols are nothing, but the spiritual world, that is very real, Paul wants us to see. Just because an idol's nothing doesn't mean that the spiritual world is also nothing. And Paul makes this clear by reminding the, the Corinthians of, 
of their spiritual past and how that's tied up with their, their spiritual ancestors. He says, remember what your ancestors did, said Paul. Remember they walked through the sea. Some of us have just looked at that, this in the book of Exodus, where Moses parted the sea and they walked through on, on dry land. The most amazing of spirit, spiritual events, of supernatural events, the parting of a sea. If the spiritual world doesn't exist, well, how do you explain the parting of the Red Sea then? And he goes on to say that the spiritual ancestors, they ate the spiritual food of manna in the desert and they, they drank the spiritual drink of water from the rock. His point's clear, isn't it? Don't be deceived while idols are nothing. The spiritual world is very much real. And if you want proof of that, he's saying, look back to your history. Look back to your ancestors. Consider things like manna from heaven. And I think Paul's reminding the Corinthian church about this so that they don't get the wrong idea from chapter 8. See, idols are nothing, but the spiritual world is very real. That's the first thing that I want you to get out of this passage. The second, of course, is that we as Christians share in the spiritual heritage of our ancestors. In other words, our spiritual DNA comes from our ancestors and those stories about what happened after the Exodus. And Paul wants us to see that that means that our spiritual heritage, you and mine, our spiritual heritage is marked by rebellion. And that's what Paul outlines, I think, in verses 6 to 10 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles there, I'd love you to look down at verses 6 to 10 because he gives us some examples of this rebellion let me read these verses to you this is what he says now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did verse 7 do not be idolaters as some of them were as it is written the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did and in one day 23,000 of them died we should not test Christ as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. You see the point Paul's making? He's picking some examples of what happened in, in the Old Testament. Some examples of what our spiritual ancestors did. And he's showing us that they were rebellious. And see, despite the people of Israel having experienced that wonder of passing through the Red Sea as if on dry land, despite the wonder of each day waking up to collect basketfuls of manna, time and time again, they reject God's rule and they rebel. And Paul digs into this rebellion a bit deeper in verse 7 of the passage. You can see a direct quote there from Exodus 32. Gone, got, uh, Moses had gone up into the mountain to meet with God, and while he was gone, the people made an idol, a golden calf. We've not got this far through the story of Exodus as a church, but it's coming up in verse 32, chapter 32. And let me just read to you from verse 5 of Exodus 32. This is what it says. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings, and afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. See, the people had made an idol from their gold earrings. The idol itself is nothing, it's just melted down golden earrings. But do you see what's connected to it? Revelry. 
which is a sanitized way of describing what the people did afterwards. To move on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, it's a little bit more obscure. I think this is a reference to Numbers 25, where the men of Israel were seduced by Moabite women and taken into their temples. And, and the end result of that is, well, it was the death of thousands and thousands of people. Judgment from God. In verses 9 and 10 of 1 Corinthians 10, we read about the people grumbling towards God. Remember, these people had manna in the wilderness. Remember, it tasted like honey. But in Numbers 11, they complain. Let me read to you from Numbers 11, verse 4. They said, The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we have meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. And also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Let me ask you, how is it that you would behave if you woke up every morning and you could pick up basketfuls of manna to eat? I'd love to see what manna tastes like. I'd love the, I love the idea of going out to collect it in the morning. It, it sounds so amazing, but I know that I've got Israelite DNA in me in that sense, spiritual Israelite DNA. I know that. Let me give you an example. Meredith makes a wonderful meal called chicken shawarma. It's one of my favorite dishes. It's, it's saucy, it's salty, it's, it's spicy at the same time. I don't know how she does it, but she kind of cuts it through with lemon and it just, it all works so well together. The other night, the kids were talking about their favorite meals and someone said, what's your favorite meal? And I said, I think it's mum's chicken shawarma. To which Meredith, my wife, replied, I'm not making that anymore. We've had it too often. We're all going to get sick of it. See, I know how they would feel, right? I know how the Israelites would feel. Regardless of how tasty something might be, we so often find a way to grumble, don't we? I know I'm prone to grumpiness. I'm reminded here that I've got that spiritual DNA flowing through me. I know I'm losing my hair because of my grandfather's DNA and I've got a bit of his physical DNA in me. But I'm reminded here when this passage talks about grumbling and grumpiness that I share in the DNA, the spiritual DNA of my ancestors. And that means for me also that I am prone to wander from God. I too am prone to rebel and so I need to read this passage taking great care and hearing the warning that's in this passage. I need to keep turning back to Jesus. And if I read this passage carefully, I think I need to do that, especially when I'm feeling on top of the world. I think that's the point of verse 12. Have a look down at what verse 12 says in this passage. It says, don't be overconfident. Let me read the verse to you. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. We need to recognize, I think, that our spiritual heritage is, is with those who fell. Do you know what happened to the Israelites? It's there in verse 5 of this passage. It says this, Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. We read in Exodus that God brought 600,000 men out of Egypt. I take it that there were women with them as well. And when we add in the women plus the children, there were literally millions of people 
who God brought out of Egypt. My guess is more than a million adults were saved from Egypt. Do you know how many of them entered into the promised land as adults? Just two, Joshua and Caleb. What does this teach us, do you think? Well, Don Carson, when preaching on this passage, says this. He says, this shows us that you can be saved out from without being saved into. He says, that's a scary thought. See, the Israelites were saved out of Egypt, but not many of them, only two, were saved into the promised land. Or perhaps another way of thinking of this is that you can start out in what looks like the right way, but not go on in your faith. I think Jesus illustrates that point with the parable of the sower. Do you remember that parable back in Mark chapter 4? In that parable, the the, the sower sows the word of God and the, the word of God, it lands on different types of soil. Today, for us, the soil that is of interest is that, that rocky soil where, where the seed falls in the rocky soil, it sprouts up quickly, but because the, the, the soil has no place for the root to go down, the plant only lasts a short time. This parable seems to be used to explain how, how some people appear to start off in the faith so well, but when they're faced with trouble or persecution or hardship, they seem to fall away. I want you to heed this warning today. I find verse 11 in this passage quite an interesting passage. Sorry, verse 11, quite an interesting verse, because often I hear people express ideas that the Old Testament has just been kind of bolted on to the front of our Bibles to make them a bit more, a bit more weighty, a bit heavier. You know, some people think that for Christians all we need is the New Testament and the, the Old Testament just kind of fills the book out so that it slams down on the table with a bit more gravitas or something like that. And of course we do need the New Testament and it's great for us as Christians but I think in verse 11 Paul here is showing us that the events of the Old Testament happen and were recorded for us so that we might not set our hearts on evil things like they did have a look down at verse 11 this is what it says these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come i wonder is that how you understand the old testament parts of our bible do you think the old testament bible was was primarily written for the jewish people i mean it's their text but but look what paul is saying here paul's telling us that the Old Testament, its primary purpose, it always was, is for us. I reckon that's incredible. The Old Testament, it acts as a, as a warning for us. And that's part of the reason why, I think, as a church, we want to be looking at books of the Bible like Exodus. Because I'm convinced that the whole counsel of God can shape and teach and train us to be more like Jesus. And part of that, I think, is to take the warnings in the Bible, seriously. And so this chapter in 1 Corinthians, it's a powerful warning. Don't be like your ancestors. Learn from their mistakes. So how do we do that? How do we learn from their mistakes? Well, I reckon a really great place for us to start 
is to simply acknowledge our own propensity towards rebellion. A great place to start, I think, is for us to acknowledge that our hearts are are just like their hearts. And that's why pretty much every week at Trinity Church only, we say a prayer of confession together. Part of the reason why we do this is because we share the spiritual DNA of our ancestors. We too are prone to rebellion and we need to keep coming back to God, acknowledging our need for Him, acknowledging and trusting in the atoning work of Jesus. Paul's warning in verse 12 is that you think you are standing firm, be careful. We need to be a people who are constantly turning back to God, asking for forgiveness and trusting in His mercy. I think that's the first thing that we should and can do. The second thing I think we can do is to remember who God is. See, although we're prone to wander, although we could say we are spiritually weak, I want you to see from this passage that God is not. I want you to see instead that God is strong, that he is sovereign and that he is in control. And I think that's the point of verse 13. Let me read to you verse 13 from this passage. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. I want to acknowledge this is one of those verses in the Bible that's often misquoted. Here, Here I think is what this passage is saying. While we are weak... God is strong. While we're weak, God is strong. See, as people, we all know what it is to face temptation. And and sadly, most of us know what it is to be overtaken by temptation as well. Christians are those who persevere through that. Christians are those who stay with Jesus to the very end. And how do we persevere? Well, I want to suggest it's by trusting not in our strength or not in our ability to persevere but trusting in a God who is strong. Trusting that we will be held by Him. Come with me to John chapter 10. If you've got your Bibles, flick flick over to John chapter 10. It's going to come up on the screen as well if you don't want to flick there. But in John chapter 10, Jesus is being challenged in the temple and the people are asking Him, is He really the Messiah? And in verse 25, Jesus answers them and He says this. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. You see here from this little bit of John, you see here that those who know and follow Jesus, well, Jesus has given them eternal life and no one can snatch them out of his hand. And God the Father who is greater than all, he has you in his hand also. I think Jesus is saying, while we might be spiritually weak, he is not. And so what really matters is not how tightly we hold on to Jesus, but how tightly he holds on to us. 
And I hope this is an encouragement for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you trust in him, I want you to know that he has got you. He's holding on to you. While we are spiritually weak, we are protected by a very strong God. Now, if that's sitting well with you, excellent. I'm glad to hear that. But for some of you, there, there might be a question forming. If there's not a question forming, like just switch off for the next two minutes, all right? I don't want you to get confused by this question. But for some, there might be a question forming. If God has got us very tightly, then what is the point of the warning in this passage? If Jesus will hold on to us, why bother with the warning? Now, that's a really good question to be asking. And it's a question I want to tell you that many, many pages of ink have been written about. As I've been thinking through this, both in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews, I've found some words of Don Carson's very helpful for you. And again, if you've not arrived at this question yourself, please just check out at this point. But here's how Don Carson helps us to understand this. I've got the quote on the screen and I'm going to read it to you. This is what Don Carson says. The Bible provides you with rich, thick, encouraging, bountiful assurance and promises as long as you are walking with Jesus. It is the Bible. It is not interested in providing you with absolutionists, epistemological certainty when you are living in a fashion indistinguishable from the world of flesh and the devil. At that point, instead, it gives warning and says, in effect, are you really a Christian? If so, you will repent. And if not, God have mercy on your soul. Now, there's a lot more that can be said in this space, of course. We haven't got time to do that this morning. But where does it leave us? Well, oh, hopefully, I, I hope this leaves you heeding the warning in this passage recognizing our spiritual DNA and our need to keep turning back towards God in repentance. But there is one more application, I think, to this passage, and that's there in verse 14, and it's this, flee from idolatry. See, Paul knows what we're like, and he wants us to flee from idolatry, and he starts to circle back to that idea of idolatry in the second part of this passage. Now, obviously, idolatry was a big thing in the church of Corinth there were temples left right and center and previously back in chapter 8 Paul had said that idols are nothing and it's not that he's changed his mind here no if you look down at verse 19 Paul's still sure that idols are nothing but now he wants us to remember that while idols are nothing the spiritual world is very real and I reckon this is a message that we need to hear pretty clearly today in Adelaide there are not many places here where you can go and see idols like there were in Corinth well, we make different sort of idols, don't we? Our idols are things like cars or boats or houses or jobs or success or comfort. Our idols look very different. But the other thing about Adelaide is that our society has almost completely forgotten the reality of the spiritual world. We've become so fixated on the material world, we don't even acknowledge the presence of a spiritual world anymore. And so we need to hear the warning of verses 14 to 22 clearly. What is that warning? Well, either we are sharing or participating or perhaps fellowshipping in the life of Jesus or we are sharing and participating and fellowshipping in the life of demons. 
We read to you from verse 18. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. I think what Paul is saying here is that while idols are nothing, participating or fellowshipping with idols, that really does lead to something. Because behind those idols are, are demons. And while idols are nothing, the spiritual world is very real. And so says Paul, flee from idolatry. Don't even dip your toe into the sorts of things that is about idolatry. And I hope that's helpful for us to hear this morning. Because our culture is so separate from the idea of a spiritual world. We're all about the material things, the things you can touch and taste and see. But the message of the Bible is that there's more to this world than just those things. The Bible teaches us that the spiritual world is very real. And Paul's warning and his encouragement is not to participate, or perhaps better still, not to fellowship in the, the practices of idolatry, because behind those things are demons. Now, I wonder what this means for us today. Our idols are different, aren't they? Our idols are not things made of stone and wood. They're more likely to be things like status or family or success or being accepted or your reputation or your looks. Those are the sort of things that we make idols of today. I wonder if the demons delight just as much when we participate in the fellowship of those sort of idols. Do those things distract us from the gospel? And here's Paul's point. You're either in fellowship with Christ and his church or you're in fellowship with the demons. Verse 21 says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. It's one or the other. And I find that scary. Partly because I know I'm like my ancestors and I can get pretty comfortable with my idols. And Paul says, flee from those things. And I remind you what I said earlier, we might need to own this. Be good for you to think through what are the idols that you have in life? And what are they connected to? And you might need to turn back to Jesus to make sure that you're fellowshipping and participating with him. In a few moments, we're going to share a meal together. It's the same meal that Paul mentions here in these verses. The, the sharing of bread and in our case, the sharing of some juice. And... The participation in this meal, it's one of the ways in which we can express our, our unity together and it's one of the ways in which we can express our fellowship with Jesus. Now, we normally celebrate this meal together once a month, sitting in our seats. But today you might notice that the idea of sharing in the one loaf, and so we're going to try something a bit different today. I'm going to ask you to bear with us as we do this because it's going to be a little bit awkward and a little bit messy but I'm going to invite you after we've sung and after the kids have come back from their programs in a few minutes to come up to the front and to take a piece of bread from one loaf today as we remind each other of what it is to be part of the body of Christ. 
what it is to share in the one loaf and to be reminded just what it is that Jesus has done in his body being broken for us and his blood being poured out. I'm going to talk you through that in a few moments. We're going to sing again and I'm going to try and explain very carefully and clearly what to do. It will be a little bit messy and a little bit awkward, but that's what families are like, right? So I hope, it work, I hope, I hope you um, are able to participate in that with us. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. Father God, we thank you for this little bit of the Bible that reminds us what we're like as people, that reminds us that we're prone uh, to rebellion, prone to turn away from you. We thank you uh, for the saving work of Jesus. We thank you that you've called us to be people who turn back to you. We also want to thank you that while we are not strong, we know that you are. We thank you that you hold on to us. Father, we ask that through your spirit, you would help us to be people who are characterised by our willingness to repent and turn back to you, trusting in your goodness. Amen.